Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Unlike, of, uh, unlike the rest of the churches across North America and uh, Europe this morning that are reading from, I believe it's Matthew 19.4. I think it's Matthew 19.4. God made the male and female. Can we all get an amen about that one? Amen. amen. All right, so there's the sermon as far as that goes. I'm going a little different direction this morning. Still speaking about uh, biblical sexuality on Biblical Sexuality Sunday. I'm reading this morning from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Speak louder. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. On January 8th, 2022, last year, Bill C-4 became law in Canada. What was Bill C-4? It was the federal bill that allowed it, that, that amended, sorry, the criminal code to ban what was called or is called conversion therapy. This is what we here might call a dog whistle. It's a dog whistle of a term that allowed the federal government to criminalize anyone who participated in a practice, treatment, or service designed to, and then went on to describe six activities, all of which are general and vague, that determine what they believe conversion therapy is. All right? I'll give you only two examples of the six as a reminder, okay? Just two of the six. Number one, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or behavior. Second one, change a person's gender identity to cisgender. What is cisgender, you may ask? It's a great question. It's a made-up word. Let's just do us all a favor and call it what it is. Cisgender is normal. Normal. Therefore, it should read, change a person's made-up gender identity to that which resembles normal and rational. That's what that should say if we're, if we're really trying to make it make sense in today's, today's world. The bill in the preamble referred to belief in the normal and rational, as I've just stated, as belonging to the category of myth and stereotypes. Myth and stereotypes. What are the consequences of breaking this law, you may ask? Well, let me remind you. Imprisonment for a term not longer than five years. Jail for five years. It goes on to say, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. So what does that mean? It means that today... I, standing in this pulpit and numerous other pastors across Canada, are putting ourselves in jeopardy by preaching what the Bible says about sexuality and gender and ethics and so forth. Last year there were pastors across Canada, there weren't many of us, but there were a few of us, who preached against this bill and promoted a biblical sexual ethic on the Sunday following the bill's passing into law. So this year, on the same weekend, today being the day, 
we are doing it again. And it looks like it's going to be a thing moving forward every year. There has to be pushback, and the church must push back. Pastors across Canada, the U.S., and even now spreading into Europe this morning, or for those in Europe, have already this morning, uh, are preaching on the topic again. The church militant, meaning those that are boldly standing on the Word of God unapologetically, are standing together against this outrageous bill and the ramifications of it. What are, what are our weapons of war? We are the church militant after all. The Bible tells us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. And, sorry, I wasn't done yet. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The church must fight. The church must fight. The church must stand against that which is anathema to Christ. But the kingdom is not won through sword. It's not won through guns and rifles. As much as sometimes our physical flesh may wish that to be so. It's not done by physical means. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, what? Take up the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Ephesians 6, 12-13. And what is our offensive primary weapon against this evil? What's our offensive weapon? Our offensive weapon, Paul tells us, is stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit and with all prayer and supplication. Our offensive weapon, folks, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How do we defeat evil? By preaching and teaching the Word of God and praying at all times. So, let's do that, shall we? The first thing I want you to be aware of is that there is an idea out there among the supporters of the LGBT movement that homosexuality is not new. 
and that somehow we Christians haven't known about it. I've actually had conversations where someone says, you know, homosexuality's been around a long, long time. You know, it's not new. What do I say to that? I, I've read my Bible. I know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah thousands of years ago and why. Thank you. Uh, we Christians are well aware that, that this movement's been around for a while. When you research LGBT history, uh, it's funny, they have painstakingly pushed their agenda as far back in history as they could find. Thereby, what, what's the point of that? They push it as far back as they possibly can in order to normalize their actions and their movement today. They're trying to normalize the movement. And the way to do that is go, see, it's been around for a long, long time. Everything is normal. Everything is normal. See, our proclivities go back thousands and thousands of years, they might say. Well, we're Christians, we know our Bible, right? You know what's even older than homosexuality? Fratricide. Fratricide. Cain killed Abel. Can we claim fratricide as being normal? Is that how this works? We go back as far back as we can to find some activity that we want to be normalized and say, see, here it is. Must be normal. One cannot reach back into history as a means of normalizing behavior. It's not how it works. If that were the case, if that were the case, we'd still be terrified of the Danes, wouldn't we? Here come the Danes to rape and pillage again. But hey, it's normal. They've been doing it a long time, right? It's not how it works. The term LGBT was popularized in the early 70s. 1970s. As you will notice, there are only four letters. L-G-B-T. Right? Today, L-G-B-T is now... Trying not to tongue, get tongue twisted here. You ready for this? 2-S-L-G-B-T-Q-Q-I-A+. That, that's what it is today. As you can tell, it's, it's added a few. Right Now, I'm not going to go through all of them and explain them. And to tell you the truth, I'm not, even, I'm not even sure I could if I wanted to. But what I do want to do is point out that the list is growing. Okay? The list is growing. The obvious question is, where does it end? Right? Where does it end? What is going to stop this list from growing further ad nauseum? As far as I can tell, the answer is nothing. Especially when the government asserts that gender is anything one claims it is, and that gender depends on how one feels. So what that means, folks, is potentially there are 8 billion genders today. If, if it is what you think it is, or what you feel it is, then that means for every person in the world, they can each individually have their own gender. Eight billion genders. When Christians made the argument years ago that this line of thinking would lead to chaos, we were accused of the slippery slope fallacy. Some of you are probably around for that. We were accused of fear-mongering. 
we were told all that the homosexuals want is really they all they want is to be left alone they claimed stop arresting us and just leave us alone that was the argument this is what we were told when the issue of marriage was brought up see it was Christians that went wait a second how soon till they till they want to have marriage till they want homosexual uh, homosexual marriage to be recognized what was the response allegedly they didn't want anything to do with marriage they didn't want anything to do with marriage they just wanted to be left alone so the question I have is where are we today where are we today the problem with the slippery slope is that unless one can definitively explain what will stop the momentum of any movement what logically follows is the chaos where will it end no one can say and they can point at Christians and go slippery slope fallacy but it's really easy for us Christians to go tell me objectively what's going to stop it if they can't give an answer the slippery slope fallacy absolutely applies what has been the church's response depends on how you define the church I suppose but overwhelmingly the majority of evangelicalism has given in to some degree to the movement overall I didn't see the denomination involved in a photo this week maybe some of you saw it but it was a picture of a tranny preaching from a pulpit in what looks like to be a traditional service I don't know if it was a Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran there was somebody in the background you could see that was dressed in what we might call the traditional garb right but in the pulpit was a tranny more and more churches are caving in to the societal pressures even among those of us that are defying the movement there is fear there's fear I know of at least one preacher who said this week he personally stands against this movement he personally stands against it but he's not preaching about biblical sexuality today why well, or not today or any other day for that matter why for fear of what it will do to his church his church he claims is not ready for the kind of message he'd like to preach regardless of what you or I may think of this I have my little red flags up when I hear this maybe some of you do as well but regardless of what you or I may think of this the fact of the matter is this sentiment is not foreign in most churches today I believe churches are full of well I'll say it cowardly pastors that are more afraid of losing their jobs than they are of preaching God's Word one might ask how has this movement been so successful it's a good question it starts in 1970 with a man named Carl Whitman writing an article or a manifesto it's titled a gay manifesto in which he describes in mostly Marxist terms and he's he's upfront about the fact that they're Marxist terms the deconstruction of Western familial categories relating to sexual ethics so this goes all the way back to 1970 
there are all kinds of accusations of oppression and whatnot to justify the militancy of the article. If you read the article, it's pretty militant. It's pretty out there. In 1987, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen wrote a gay agenda blueprint. And here's the, here's the underlying part of it. A plan to transform America. A plan to transform America. They outlined six steps that would accomplish this goal. Okay? I'm going to outline these six steps and you tell me if they sound at all familiar. Okay? Number one, talk about gays and gayness as loudly as possible whenever possible. Okay? Talk about homosexuality as often as possible, also in a most positive light. Okay? Why? Why would they do that? They would do that to make homosexuality to seem as normal as possible. That it's common. That it's acceptable. The idea behind it was, if, if you're talking about it, it gets people in the office sort of thinking, oh, maybe, uh, maybe homosexuality is more popular than I thought it was. Maybe it's not as aberrant as I thought it was. The idea was to normalize it. The idea, and this is, this is actually a term uh, used, the idea was to get the proverbial camel's nose in the tent. It's, it's from an Arab sort of proverb or whatever they call that. Nobody wants a camel in the tent. Nobody. However, if you, were want, if you were to want to get a camel in the tent, where would you start? Would you start them backing up so you see the ugly parts? Or do you just want to get a nose in? The idea is to get the nose in and then slowly get the head in and then the shoulders that's how you get in right with regards to the American church Kirk and Madsen also described a strategy by which the homosexual movement could counter and largely nullify opposition from America's churches here's what they wrote when conservative churches condemn gays, there are only two things we can do to confound the homophobia of true believers. First, we can use talk to muddy the moral waters. Peter has a, has a word for this, right? Uh, Peter talks about um, uh, fine-sounding arguments. And so the idea is, is that you want to muddy the waters. That was deliberate. Let's talk about it, let's try to find loopholes, and let's muddy the waters. This means publicizing support for gays by more moderate churches, so they find allies in the more moderate churches, and then they promote them like crazy. Raising theological objections of our own about conservative interpretations of biblical teachings. This happens all the time, right? You can go to any of these liberal churches today. They read the same Bible you and I do, but they deliberately take Scripture and twist it to mean it means something different or to, to contextualize it in that was then, this is now. Right? That was then, 2,000 years ago. It doesn't apply today. That's the idea. What they want to do is they want to expose hatred. This is their words. They want to expose hatred and inconsistency. So that's what they're doing to churches like ours and Christians like us who hold to the biblical sexual ethic is that they use terms like hatred, homophobic, 
and then they look and go, other churches use it differently, you're wrong. There's something inconsistent here. Alright? Step two. Portray gays as victims, not as aggressive challengers. So the idea was, is when homosexuals started showing up on our TV screens, how were they portrayed? Were they portrayed as strong, masculine, strong men, moral, manly? Not at all. They were portrayed as victims. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks. Perfect example. Absolutely spot on perfect example. Tom Hanks was a homosexual who was picked on. There was nothing manly about him. He was just a weak man who's harmless. Never hurt anybody. Just out there trying to do his job. And he was picked on. Watch that movie and tell me who the protagonist was and who the antagonists were. Step three. Give protectors a just cause. Give protectors a just cause. What they wanted to do was push an anti-discrimination agenda. Right? So allies might be hard to come by at first. Right? But... Under the battle cry of anti-discrimination, more and more people would come on board as unwitting protectors of the agenda. Who wants to be part of a bunch of haters and discriminators? Nobody. So we call people that oppose the movement haters and discriminators, and more and more people will get on board. Step four. Step four. Make gays look good. Make gays look good. Make gays look good. I remember Amy coming back from a women's Bible study once and she told me about how the pastor's wife who was leading the study commented about Hollywood sneaking in or normalizing sexually deviant behaviors. Um, the example that the pastor's wife gave during the Bible study was the movie Shark Tale. I don't think I've ever seen Shark Tale. I, I think I get the premise of it, though. Shark Tale was primarily aimed at children. Another disturbing, another disturbing trend. Uh, apparently, one of the sharks is, let's just say, he's a little on the different side. He's a little on the... He's a lovable character, though. He's a lovable character who's clearly different. He's not a typical shark when we think of sharks. He's not a typical shark. What's funny was is that when Amy told me that, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing, but she thought it was kind of nonsense, and I most definitely thought it was nonsense. Nonsense. Conspiracy theory. Give your head a shake. Come on. It's just a movie. Right? That was my attitude. Now, I can think of many, many other characters in TV shows and movies over the last three decades that were gay. All of them fit one of two categories. They were victims or they were adorable, lovable characters. All of them. They all, to a T, fit this description. Step five. Make the victimizers look bad. So make, make the homosexuals look good. 
In contrast, anyone who opposes, you have to make them look bad. Anytime you could make an example of someone who opposes the LGBTQ or the LGBT movement, you would make them out to be the antagonist. They would be the bad guy. They would be the intolerant bigot. Sound familiar? This plants seeds in people's minds that anyone who opposes the movement automatically fit the antagonist role. Automatically. You're the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. Right? We are all the bad guys. Step six, solicit funds. So the idea goes something like this. Homosexualities don't have, or homosex, homosexualities, homosexuals, generally speaking, don't have children. Therefore, they have more disposable income than the traditional family. So a couple of uh, gay or lesbians have significantly more money than a family of five. Probably agree with that, right? The LGBT movement, the, the lobby targeted their own, they targeted their own people and corporations to support their cause and to donate money. Why? Because businesses knew where the disposable money was at. Of course they would support such a cause. Of course they would. Why has the church been so anemic in fighting against this movement? Numerous reasons, I suppose, but I'm only going to touch on a few. First reason, I think, is poor theology. Poor theology. We stopped catechizing our children and studying our Bibles a long time ago. We forgot who God was. We forgot who we were in the process. When you forget who God is, you forget who you are. Uh, we forgot how dangerous sin is. We forgot how to love our neighbors by sharing the good news with them. Evangelicals stop being evangelical. Our churches forgot what worship was and why we were even there, which is why I'm so ecstatic to see our liturgy. We're bringing it back, all the way back to the Reformation, approaching God in a reverent way, the way we're supposed to, biblically. The message of the church changed from repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But it starts with repentance. That's, that's gone. Maybe making a comeback, but it was gone for a long time. What was that message replaced with? How about God loves you just the way you are? How many times did you hear that? I heard it often. The church decided it was more important to be relevant than it was to being biblical. Second, I believe it's poor eschatology. Poor eschatology. When dispensationalism became popularized in the mid-1800s, the church started playing what I would call the short game. Started playing the short game instead of the long game. The church started hunkering down in our four walls. We were just waiting for Jesus to rapture us out of here. Right? Why build the kingdom when God was going to let the world go to hell in a handbasket? When the kingdom became something ethereal, meaning out there, couldn't touch it, right? The whole concept of the kingdom of God being up there and maybe one day we'll see it. 
right? Instead of something tangible, the kingdom of God is something tangible, present. You can see it. The church gave up the battle once we went to that ethereal instead of the tangible. After all, what were we fighting for? Third, worldly thinking. Our churches were no longer lights on a hill. We were no longer salt of the earth, but rather we largely became worldly in our thinking. I didn't grow up in the church. I was of the world for the first 33 years of my life. Folks, that's a lot of time to become accustomed to the world. I was saying to Amy just the other day that I still, to this day, I still find myself at times, from time to time, I catch myself where worldly thinking, worldly wisdom, world philosophy is spat out by someone smart sounding and I'll go, ooh, that sounds bright. Or, conversely, someone spits out something biblical and I recoil at it. And I have to stop myself and I go, I got to analyze for a second and go, wait a second. What was said? How does that align with the Bible? If it aligns with the Bible, I change my mind. If it doesn't align with the Bible, I recognize it as worldly thinking and go, that's not good. But I have to actively do that. It's annoying, but I have to actively do it. I have to ask myself on a regular basis, am I thinking with a Christian worldview in this case? I have found in most cases, even in the evangelical church, we tend to think worldly. We tend to think worldly rather than biblically. And there are consequences to this. Finally, we didn't recognize the fact that we were frogs in a slowly boiling pot. I believe that. We, we didn't even realize. All of Western society was the frog in the boiling pot. We didn't recognize the signs. We didn't believe our own lying eyes. We didn't believe the pastor's wives who said, they're sneaking it in. They're sneaking it into the movies. Be aware. What did we do? We scoffed. Shame on us. We scoffed at the religious zealots that were trying to warn us. And here we are. So what do we do about it? First thing we need to do is be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to reverse the trends. At least the ones we can control. At the end of the long acronym of the movement, LGBTQ, sorry, 2SLGBTQQIA+. I think I got it right. At the end of that, there's a plus. Plus sign. What is that for? I believe what's coming down the pike next is this moral degeneration. Of this moral degeneration, there's two specific areas of concern for the church. I think this is what's coming. The first one I'm only going to touch on briefly, but I want you to keep in mind the six steps. Remember the six steps? Just think in your own mind as I'm, as I'm giving these. What, what step are we on? Okay, so the first one's pedophilia. What's the latest? 
New Zealand has just this week lowered the age of consent to 12. 12. Adults can legally have sexual relations with a willing 12-year-old. Academia in Canada have been pushing to have pedophilia recognized as a sexual preference. As a sexual preference, rather than something criminal. Think about it. If the mantra of homosexuality uh, is, I was born this way, therefore you can't judge me, it's not my fault. If that works, which evidently it has for years, why would the pedophile not make the same claim? The problem is, is that they have. They are making that claim, and they continue to do so. Netflix produced and aired a show called Cuties. I don't know if you're aware of this. Cuties. A show that for all intents and purposes sexualizes prepubescent girls who dance provocatively and wear skimpy outfits. Corporations have been pushing boundaries. Companies like Balenciaga who had to pull their holiday ad over accusations of over-sexualizing children. I just dare you to read up. If you haven't read up on that one, go ahead. It involves bondage, believe it or not. Unbelievable. What step are we on? Out of those six steps, what step do you think we're on? Regarding the normalization of sexualizing our children. Thankfully, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I honestly believe that there are st there's still significant pushback in this area. But don't be fooled. Please don't be fooled. Boundaries are being tested and more importantly, all safeguards have already been removed. All safeguards are gone. Which is why they can freely push those. Right? The second plus that we have coming down the pike is that of polygamy. This, I'm afraid, is a slam dunk. Sorry, folks. It is a slam dunk at this point. It will be accepted and legalized in our Western society very soon. Why? The question is why? First off, the concept of many spouses or multiple partners is already largely accepted in society. It already is, right? The fact that our modern education has taught us that we're all animals that evolved from the slimy goo and that, get this, the vast majority of animals in creation are not monogamous, right? They're not monogamous. Therefore, and it's always this important part, here's the connection, therefore, it's perfectly rational and reasonable to assume that once upon a time, humans or humanoids were not always monogamous. In fact, they were never monogamous. That's the argument. The argument made is often that it was religion that artificially, that's the important part, religion artificially put the restrictions of sexual relations to that of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. Once we throw off the shackles of religion, we can return to what is natural. That's the argument. Purity... The idea of saving oneself for their future spouse is absolutely laughed at today. It's laughed at. You want to what? You're how old? You're saving yourself for what? 
If you hold to the idea of a biblical marriage, you are in a minority today and it's not even close. Secondly, how do you think most Christians would answer the assertion that polygamy is unacceptable? How do you think most Christians would push back against polygamy? Personally, I think most of us would be in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. We wouldn't know how to, other than going, uh, Genesis 2.24, and the two shall become one flesh. But that would be about the extent of it, wouldn't it? Why? The argument by a biblically knowledgeable proponent of polygamy would do what? What would they do? They'd point at the Bible and they say, where in the Bible does it condemn polygamy? Explicitly. Find me the scripture that says polygamy is wrong. You may not do it. Can you find it? It's not there. And before you could even answer that question, they would pile on. At least I would. From their perspective, I'd start piling on. The next question would be, out of my mouth, is how do you answer the fact that there are numerous characters in the Bible that had multiple wives? I can name just a couple. David, a man after God's own heart. David, multiple wives. How about his son Solomon? 700 wives, 300 concubines. How in the world can anyone tell me that the Bible doesn't endorse polygamy when you've got those two characters having multiple wives? What are you talking about? In fact, we have academic scholars like Robertson McWilkin in his Biblical Ethics textbook. He was my Biblical Ethics textbook when I was in seminary. Great book until I got to the part on marriage. And I was just floored. Here's what he said. Monogamy is almost certainly the ideal marital arrangement for humankind. But at the same time, we must admit that the Bible nowhere directly condemns polygamy and nowhere directly affirms monogamy as the only legitimate arrangement. I read that and almost fell off my chair, going, surely he must be wrong. Surely. But he was right with regards to the... There's nothing explicit. What he just said there isn't wrong. He goes on further to say, Furthermore, polygamy is definitely not viewed in Scripture as sexual impurity. I really struggled with this when I read that, that, that part of the book. I was just floored. So, what do we do with that? When even our own biblical scholars are going, well, well, I would start with what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And what principles can we learn from it? Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All of you here were at, except, except for you guys, you, you guys were sick. Um, the entire church already heard this sermon. Last weekend, right? What does the term hold fast mean? It means to cling, to cleave, to keep close, to fasten its grip, joined, joined together. 
On and on the Hebrew goes, all of which indicate that this is an action that requires actually constant attention. Constant attention. When you are married, you can't ignore your wife. You can't ignore your husband. To do so is to go against what the scripture calls clinging to. You need constant attention. You will also notice that indicated here is the idea of one man cleaves to one wife. And this is further clarified by the image of what? Two becoming one. Two becoming one. I'm not a brain surgeon, but what I can do is I can pull from that certain lessons that mean marriage is between what? One man, one woman. Is it explicit? Depends on what you mean by explicit. Now we can infer anything from this text which would give us an idea of what the covenant of marriage is supposed to be. What's it supposed to look like? McWilkin and others call this the ideal. It's the ideal, but it's not the only. It's not the only. Well, can we find anywhere else in Scripture that can help us out? Every place in Proverbs, every place in Proverbs, including chapter 31, monogamy is assumed. Monogamy is assumed. Nowhere can you assume polygamous relationships and have any of those Proverbs make any sense whatsoever. So all of the Proverbs indicate monogamy. Job is monogamous. Song of Solomon is ironically monogamous. Song of Solomon was written by Solomon with 700 wives and 300 concubines. But the entire Song of Solomon assumes monogamy. Israel and God were in a covenant marriage. Israel being God's bride. Jeremiah 2 verses 1 to 2. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. But Israel constantly finds herself in trouble. Constantly. Why? Because she is not devoted to her husband, she is not faithful to her husband. God was faithful to her. Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Talking about... This is about as explicit as we get with polygamy. It seems pretty strong language, actually. And he shall not require many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Silver and gold is good, but not too much silver and gold. One wife is good. Many wives, you're flirting with disaster. Don't go there. This was the rule for the king. And I would argue if the king was not allowed to have multiple wives, why would anyone else in Israel think that they were? If the king wasn't, but you can? Don't you think the king would look at that a little funny? What was the reasoning behind it? 
over and over again, we see the consequences of men, especially leaders, being led away from God and their duties by multiple wives. The high priest was absolutely restricted to one wife. One wife only. Exodus 21 demands that the woman in a polygamous marriage are all to be legally taken care of, making polygamy what? Largely unattractive and extremely expensive. So you want to have more than one wife? Go right ahead. It's going to cost you. Legally, it's going to cost you a ton. Making it absolutely unaffordable for most in Israel. Deuteronomy 21.15 indicates that the difficulties of maintaining a cordial household with more than one wife. It, Jewish history shows that by the time of the returning Jews from exile in Babylon, monogamy was the norm for society. So by the time they were on their way back to Israel from, from Babylon, records indicate that monogamy was absolutely the norm. In the New Testament, we see Herod with a harem. Right? What can we say about Herod? How about that he was despised? King Herod was despised by the Jews. Do you think the fact that his harem was mentioned is an accident? Not at all. It was part and parcel with his character. In the New Testament, we have the qualifications of an elder. Namely, must be husband of what? One wife. We have the exhortation in, in Ephesians 5. Let each one of you, what? Love his wife. Love his wife, singular, as himself. And let the wife, singular, see that she respects her husband, one husband. While the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn polygamy, true, it most certainly discourages against it and assumes monogamy throughout. Monogamy is inferred throughout Scripture, yes, as the ideal, but also as the standard. It is the standard. Anything outside of the standard is what we would call largely unwise and most assuredly and almost exclusively unnecessary. Verboten? No. Foolish? Unwise? Unrecommended? Most certainly. When polygamy is legalized, and I believe that it's only a matter of time until it is, we must have a biblical answer ready. We must, as Christians, have a biblical answer ready. We need one ready before it comes. Marriage was designed by God as an everlasting union between one man and one woman for life. This fulfills the marriage mandate. Any other, any other to this is harmful to the union harmful to the family, and ultimately harmful to society as a whole. Polygamy is not healthy. Polygamy is going to further take our society and drive it into the ditch. The goal, ladies and gentlemen, is the dismantling of the nuclear family.
and polygamy will be part of that. And the battle continues. So in conclusion today, it's, it's far shorter than what I wanted it to be, but we've run out of time. When we look at the battle of biblical sexual ethics over the past number of years, it certainly appears that we are on the losing side. We're, we're currently losing this battle, folks. I could write an entire sermon on why we're not losing the battle, but I'll leave you with this. Matthew 16, 18 states, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And what? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail. The church prevails. John 16, 33 states, I have said these things to you, that in, in me you may have what? Peace. That you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It's here. It continues to be here. But take heart, John says. But take heart. Why? Jesus says, For I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Our weapons of war is the word. And Jesus has promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Christ and his kingdom has already won. We have won. It's our job to go inform the world that the war is actually over. The war is over. Sure, it's still in skirmishes here and there. We still have skirmishes, but Christ rising from the dead was our victory. Christ is alive. He beat the tomb, man. His grave is empty. We're what we call the mop-up crew. We're the mop-up crew. We're the ambassadors. Hey, the war's over. Christ has already won. Take heart. Our Lord and Savior has told us. Take heart. He has overcome the world. The victory is His. And by association, the victory is ours. The victory is ours. Go, I say to you, go and proclaim Christ's victory. You bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we so thank you so very much for this day. We thank you for the, for the protection, the, the pathway that you've given us to live lives that are good and holy and righteous in your eyes. You've given us those for our own safety, for our own happiness, for our own joy. They're not there as, as means by which we're restricted, means by which we're enslaved. But in fact, you and in your law have given Christians true freedom. We are the free ones. Being slaves of Christ means freedom. And we are free. We're the only free ones. Lord, send us forth. Call your sheep that more may come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we continue on in our